following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I'm always really thankful uh, to have the opportunity to uh, share from the Word of God. And I've been personally very blessed and challenged by this uh, Bible project series. And, um, you know, the, the topics that have been covered in this series, some of them have been so, so large and expansive that I'm really glad, you know, when I, when I was assigned Philemon, that I wasn't given um, a topic like justice or covenant. And I know that um, Pastor Peter has to cover sin in, in a couple weeks. And, and so I'm glad I've got Philemon. Um, and... You know, as I was thinking about this book and studying this book, you know, it was, it struck me as, as a very odd choice. It didn't seem like it fit in this series of, uh, within the Bible project. Um, you know, Philemon at face value is, is one of those books that is kind of odd in the scriptures. It, it, it has a strange name. It, you know, Paul probably wrote other letters to other individuals. And so you ask yourself, why was this particular letter included? Uh, when the canon of the New Testament was decided, why was it that God had decided to include Philemon uh, in, this, in the New Testament? Why was it necessary? It's a letter from Paul to an individual. And it, it, it feels different than some of the other letters that Paul wrote. Uh, if I were to ask any of you here, uh, can, can any of you share a verse from Philemon? Or has, has any of you have a favorite verse that you got from Philemon? Or was there a Bible study or a sermon from Philemon that you've been challenged by in your life? You, you would probably maybe say, I don't know, I haven't heard that many messages. Or I don't have anyone writing me an encouraging email and then saying Philemon, verse 20, you know, um, as... And, and so it's one of those things that perhaps um, we, we've overlooked in our lives. And, and I definitely have overlooked this book in my life. And so, you know, when I was studying it, um, it was a really um, profound experience for me. And I believe that Philemon uh, is, the message in Philemon is very timely in light of all that we've experienced uh, in this past year. You know, because it's such a short letter, uh, let me read it for us in its entirety for us, and then, uh, again, we'll, we'll dive into the passage. So, Philemon, verse 1. Uh, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough to, in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, 
an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending you my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, and I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so to Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow brothers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You know, in the summer of uh, 2012, um, it was during the London Olympics, I was asked uh, by my CEO of my company to, to go and to assist in our global expansion efforts. And so I was asked to go to London and then eventually to the Middle East and to, to Dubai and Abu Dhabi so that I could basically pitch our company's products um, to the health authority in, in um, Abu Dhabi and in Dubai. And on that trip, uh, it was a very exciting trip for me. Uh, you know, got to ride business class for the first time and, uh, you know, experience, you know, these new cities. And I was partnered up with a, the, the general manager in London uh, who ran our London branch. And, and two of us, we would spend basically you know, all, all our time together. We ate all our meals together. And he was a, a high-powered executive, a, a British gentleman, that, um, that you know, we, we, we got close as a result of our time. And the, both of us would be putting together uh, a response uh, to a proposal, and we would be presenting. And I was the person that knew the product, and he would uh, be, uh, he would be the, kind of the business mind behind it. And it was potentially, if we won the contract, which we eventually did, it, was, it would be worth millions to, my, to our company, and we would start the expansion of our uh, Middle East branch. And during our time, um, it was a time in my career where I, I was freshly promoted to, um, to be a director for the first time. I, I freshly experienced uh, this executive leadership culture. And what I had noticed was that um, those in my company, in this, in this group, they, they dressed differently and they, they acted differently. And so I was a little bit nervous about 
what it means to be an executive now for the first time. And so I took advantage of this time with this polished you know, gentleman <laughs> from, uh, to ask questions about, you know, how, you know, what do I need to do and how do I um, become a leader? And so he, start, he really enjoyed sharing kind of his wealth of knowledge. And, and so he started to um, tell me what kind of suits I need to buy and that, you know, the real executives will get custom-made shirts with their initials of their name embroidered on, on shirts. And I thought, that's crazy. And, and then he, he insisted, he insisted to go into like a Rolex watch store because that's what executives wear. And he said, your Swiss Army watch is not going to do it. And then he, he, he then took me to the store that sold ballpoint pens and he said, you have to have a really nice pen. And so I didn't buy any of these things, of course, but you know, he, he, he walked me through it and he, he talked to me about you know, this is executive culture. And then you know, when we got to you know, some honest moments, uh, he started sharing with me kind of the way that he viewed, um, uh, the way that he related to others um, in the business world. And, and he started to explain to me that he views all conversation and dialogue and um, especially in the business context as a transaction. He said that basically just like money, when you purchase something you, you assess, uh, you know, what am I getting for you know, this, this whatever I'm purchasing and, and you, you, you value it to a certain degree and so just like that in conversations and dialogues and when people are asking him for things he has to assess what is my return on investment? And do I, is it worth it uh, in the present or in the future? And so he, he looked at everything as a, as a favor and a, and a favor that was asked and, and he tracked it. And, and he said that in this executive culture, um, you keep track of favors that were asked, favors that were given, favors that were rejected. And it came from this worldview where you know, if you're strong and you're powerful and you're, you strategize that you can get ahead in society. And I thought, wow, this is really strange and a strange way of viewing relationships. Uh, and I had more exposure to that all throughout my, uh, my career. I, I, there was another time when I was working in, in my company and my CEO set up an appointment on my calendar and said, hey, let's get together really quickly. And, and we don't usually get together for these one-on-one -on -one meetings. And so when he put it on my calendar, I, I got there on time. I was a little bit anxious to see, you know, what was it that he was going to ask of me? And at the time, I was spearheading a new intern program for the company, and, and we were going to hire these UCLA grads, about seven to ten of them. And so, um, so he called me in, and he said, hey, how's your family? And, and he said, Jonathan, that's, that's my middle name, and he, I use that for work. And so he said, Jonathan, you know, I, I'm really glad that you started this intern program, and you're doing a great job. And I just wanted to let you know that one of the, one of the people that are interviewing today, he happens to be a son of a friend, and he happens to be the chief medical officer at Cedar sinai And I know that, you know, you're going to do a great job picking the right candidates, and, you know, that you are, you know, I trust you to make the right decision. And then we ended the meeting. And, you know, when I walked out of that room, 
even though he hadn't outrightly told me to hire this guy. And he ended up being a, a good intern, so it was okay, but he didn't outrightly tell me. I knew exactly what he was saying to me. Um, he was saying to me, hire the guy. <laughs> um, and so when we, when we switch back to Philemon, we, we ask ourselves, is that, is that kind of what, hap- what is happening in this letter? Is, is Paul basically kind of strong strong arming Philemon to, to kind of bend to his will? Is there some type of system here, unwritten language, where he is trying to you know, get Philemon to, to do a favor for him? You know, it's clear in this passage that Paul has authority and has influence over Philemon, doesn't he? He he reminds him in verse 8 that he could, if he wanted to, to command him to do what is required. And then in verse 19, he says, hey, you, you kind of owe me your very life. Um, because Philemon came to know Christ as a result of Paul's ministry, likely, uh, in Ephesus. And as the video stated, it's, it's clear that Paul is asking Philemon to do something that's Astounding! It's it's so countercultural at the time because a runaway slave is in the Roman Empire would be severely punished and could even be executed. And even harboring a runaway slave would carry some severe consequences. And you know, as, again, as the video mentioned, that it, not only did Onesimus run away, but it seemed like he had done something against. Philemon, that he had perhaps stolen money from him, because later on in verse 18, Paul says, anything that he owes you, charge to my account. But Paul goes even a step further. He says, not, not only should you accept him and forgive him, but now treat him like a brother. Treat him, he says, as you would treat me, as you would receive me as a beloved brother, because Onesimus had come to Christ as a result of his time with Peter, with Paul. And we've got to ask, what is motivating Paul to make this request? And it's at the motivation level that we can see that it's, it's vastly different from the motivations that drive some of these favors that are happening in the secular world. There's a, there's a different motivation. And for Paul, we see that his motivation was driven entirely by his understanding of the gospel. It was the gospel that drove Paul to write to Philemon and to ask of these things. And that's that's quite different from sometimes the drivers of self-interest that come in, in, in our secular world. Now, when we examine Paul's life, we, you know, we, we see that, we, we all know that he was a, uh, God used him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, that he was used to, to spread the good news um, beyond Jerusalem, and, and that God used him powerfully in this way. But Paul wasn't just an evangelist. He wasn't um, an ancient version of Billy Graham that went to different cities, preached, and then just moved on to the next city. But more than just, just preaching the gospel, he he planted churches. He pastored them. He lived amongst them. He worked as a, as a tent maker, and he discipled, and he grew leaders in the churches that in turn shepherded and, and led those churches. And then 
he suffered a great deal, even going to prison multiple times. And during that time, he wrote lengthy letters that articulated the doctrines behind the gospel, behind the work of Christ. And we benefit from those letters. We benefit from all that he's written on these various subjects about the glory of the gospel and now how we should live in response to that gospel. And we could study it to the day that we die, and we would probably not understand everything that Paul writes. And what's special in that all his letters from Romans you know, to Galatians to Colossians, Ephesians, all of these, they've got so much theology. They have all this teaching. But what's special about Philemon is that Paul is saying, all this teaching I've given you over the years on what the gospel is, well, let me now apply it to a very thorny, messy, broken situation in this scenario with Onesimus. And we can see that the gospel is not just lofty theology, it's not just academic concepts, but that it does apply to our everyday lives. And so Paul takes on the issue of slavery, which is an institution that is so deeply woven into the fabric of Roman culture that there are no easy answers on how to deal with it. But he applies the gospel truth to it, and that even though slaves, slaves had no rights, they had no, no, no rights of personhood in Roman society, they were viewed as property, that in the gospel, in the gospel, Paul challenges Philemon to see Onesimus not as property, but as a child of God, to see him as a brother and part of the same family of faith that experienced this koinonia that he discussed with Philemon. I want you to imagine a scenario with me. I want you to think of a person in your work life, in the many years that you've worked, that has given you some grief. And if you've worked a couple years, this won't be hard, right? You'll, you'll, that person will come right to mind. Um, this person may have slandered you behind your back. They may have harmed your career in some way. They may have just rubbed you the wrong way somehow by the things they did. They maybe took credit for your work. Maybe, they were, maybe you were in a situation where you were treated unfairly because of this person. All right, do you guys have that person in mind? Everyone have that person in mind? I, I, I've got a couple. <laughs> do you have that person in mind? Now I want you to imagine that you show up to church and you find out that this person just joined ICC. In fact, they just went to the member class and signed up to be a member. This person showed up at ICC. And even worse, Pastor Peter assigned him to your small group. And so now you're going to see that person every week. What, what are your emotions? How, how would you react to that? That's what Philemon was going through. He had to figure out, how does this gospel truth that I, I've been taught 
now apply in this situation. You know, throughout Paul's ministry, Paul constantly, constantly stood against people that wanted to bring the social practices of the culture into the church and to, to bring certain practices that, that created, again, the hierarchy that we see in society and the divisions that we see in society, they wanted to bring into the church. And so one of Paul's main battles in life early in his ministry was against these Judaizers, uh, these Jewish Christians that said, hey, to these Gentile Christians, you cannot, you cannot really be among, accepted into the kingdom of God unless you essentially become Jewish. You have to obey Jewish customs, you have to know the Old Testament law, and you've got to get circumcised. And, and it was a group of people that, that tried to impose this social practice. This, this, you have to basically, you're on the out, you have, in order for you to get in, you have to kind of act like us and be like us and, and do these things. And, and Paul spoke and he wrote against why the gospel right, contradicts this kind of belief. And he addressed not only the Judaizers, but he also addressed issues with the rich and the poor in the church and between men and women and husband and wife and parents and children and between master and slave. And he constantly taught us that, again, that we are, in the gospel, we are one in Christ. And the way that he laid out the gospel, to, to make this argument in his different books, he, he laid it out first. He laid it out first by talking about what God did. That God was the first mover. That he first loved us and he reconciled us to himself. We didn't do it. He moved first. God, because of his great love, moved and reconciled us to him. Right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 to 5. Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespass, trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He was moved by the great love that he had for us. And then Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 to 22. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. By Christ's work on the cross, God, motivated by love, reached out and then reconciled us to him. We were enemies of the cross. God first loved us. And then he says, as a result of this saving work, we have now been invited, adopted into a new family, a new group, a new kingdom, a new humanity. And he says um, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We were transferred out of the group that we belonged in, objects of wrath, and we were now transferred into this new family. God did that. And so as a result, Paul says, 
we in turn now have, when we have been reconciled to God, he now gives us now this message of reconciliation, and we become agents of reconciliation to the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 and 19, all this is from God, who through Christ recon- reconciled us to himself and gave us then the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ God, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Each of us, as a result of receiving this, this gift, we have now been given the responsibility to now be a witness to this amazing work and to go out into the world to be God's ambassadors and to implore others, hey, be reconciled to God. But here's, here's the final part. He goes to say then, because of this, all believers now are on equal footing before God because we are all recipients of undeserved mercy and grace. None of us, none of us has contributed anything to our newfound status. None of us have earned it. None of us have, have brought something to the table in terms of being able to now be accepted into this family. And so he says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Again, he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 to 28, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. So do you see how this argument builds on one another? We we have received salvation as a result of God's initiating first with us, right? Because of his great love, he reached out because for God so loved the world and as a result of his work, he reconciled us to him. As a result of being reconciled, we are adopted into a new family. We are transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And then, because we have received this free gift of reconciliation, we are now compelled to share this message of reconciliation with others. And then as a result, in relationship with one another, we now partake in this new humanity, this koinonia, where we are all members of the same household, accepted and loved and valued by God, not of anything that we have done, not because of any position we have in society, not because of any kind of ethnic background, but because only because of God's loving kindness that was given to us. We are all equal before God and one in Christ. Now, in, in outlining this teaching, um, there's a place, there's a place that many Christians conveniently stop because it's just too hard. You know, Philemon, he was a, a respected church leader. He housed the Church of Colossae. In his, they gathered at his house. And he was probably well-respected, and yet Paul saw an opportunity for him to be challenged and to grow. 
And, you know, for me over the last couple of years, it has been, I've been struck by how God has convicted me that I have been off, I have been wrong on certain stances that I had taken in my faith. And it was, it's, it's been a, a, a journey for me to accept that, gosh, maybe my, my understanding of this issue is, is off. That maybe the gospel, I have not fully applied the gospel in this area of my life. And I've I got to ask you, when was the last time that you realized that you were wrong, that you were off? When was the last time God convicted you and said, you know, in this area, you have not really applied the gospel? You know, we can readily affect, you know, accept those two boxes because that's, that's the gospel, right? God loves us, and he, he first loved us, and he transferred us into his kingdom. And then that third box we have heard in the church for our whole lives. We, we, we've been told that we have to be a witness, that we have, to be, we have to take on the Great Commission, that there are others that are in need of this gospel. And for me, guys, growing up in the church, what was taught and what was emphasized was that if you want to live for the gospel, that meant that you dedicated your life to saving as many souls as you can with your life. It was the fullest expression of the dedicated disciple of Christ. If you really understood the gospel, then you dedicated yourself to to winning souls for Christ. And, and therefore, the heroes of the faith are the, the pastors and missionaries that do this day in and day out. And, and so, be like them. And I was, I was taught even to be very suspicious of any theology that took attention away from this. To... to to take some focus away from the all-important goal of evangelism, I was taught that that's liberal theology. That social justice issues like poverty and systemic racism and health care and immigration, these are side issues. But, you know, as I've gotten older and as I've started to re-examine my faith and my background, and then, especially in light of some of the recent uh, moral failings in the church um, among prominent Christians, I've started to notice something amongst some of these stories of, of, of some of these leaders that have, that have really disappointed us. In that they were so active and so passionate, they were model examples of living out activities that were tied to the first three. They taught the first two boxes of the gospel, and they were dedicated to winning souls for Christ. But in their personal lives, they hadn't really lived out what was in the box four. They treated others poorly. They took advantage of other people, especially women. They created hierarchies where they were treated differently than others. They protected their places of privilege. 
They saw themselves as more special than others. And as well in my life, because I was so focused on, 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 on this all-important goal of saving souls, I didn't really pay that much attention to, to caring for, for people. I saw them as projects. I saw them as, as, as someone that I needed to convert. And I believe that the gospel demands that we not only focus on evangelism, that we don't focus only on evangelism as a primary responsibility of a disciple of Christ. Evangelism is important, and we are called to be faithful to it. But we are also called to partake in a new humanity. If we are really living out the gospel where social hierarchies and divisions are actively broken down by the power of the gospel, that we are active in addressing these disparities and these divisions and these, these, the injustice that we see in some of these areas, that anywhere we see any kind of hierarchy, that we have to break those things down by the power of the gospel. And Paul makes this point over and over and over again in his letters. He spends, if you notice a pattern in the way he writes letters, he'll spend time laying out a doctrine or, or, or theology of the gospel, but then he will always inevitably talk about now, how does, this, how does this translate in our relationships? How does this translate in the way that we fundamentally see each other and relate to one another? And that was really important to Paul, and he wasn't afraid to call out anyone. In fact, in Galatians 2, we see that he calls out the leader of the church at the time, the apostle Peter. Right? He, he writes, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. And when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The way that Peter was causing division in the church, Paul said, you are not living in step with the truth of the gospel. So how does this apply to us now? You know, this past year, um, there's been so much vitriol and so much anger out there, hasn't it? With, with all the news going on, uh, I, don't, I don't think I can recollect a time in my life where there's been just so much exp anger expressed over differing opinions. Black Lives Matter and racial injustice your political leanings, whether you were a Biden supporter or a Trump supporter, fake news and conspiracy theories have, have divided us in many ways. And in our day-to-day -day lives, I don't know about you, but COVID has, 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 really, has really impacted us in ways where we now are suspicious of strangers, aren't we, to some degree? 
in, in the race to secure a vaccine, maybe for yourself or for a loved one, you're fighting against others to get your share. Early on, there were hoarders of tissue paper and disinfectant wipes. Um, and then there's always that one person who doesn't wear their mask properly. And, and it, it starts to become, you know, really have an effect on the way that we look at our neighbors and, and those that are in our com- communities. Many of us have found some type of relational, our relational outlet in a pod. And that's, that's to some degree wise and smart. But a pod is a select group of friends that you've chosen, friends and family, where you say, hey, we're going to see each other and we're going to try to see each other only and we'll, in this way, limit our exposure to the virus. And we've, we've created little communities of, of, of people that we like being around. But in the coming weeks and months, as the vaccine becomes more available and the numbers start to look more encouraging and more positive, you know, I, I believe each of us will be faced with, with a decision about how we're going to re-engage into society and our workplaces and our church community here at ICC. And there's going to be this temptation there's going to be a temptation to just kind of keep things kind of the way it is and to limit our exposure to people that we don't kind of like or trust or get along with, that, that we can continue on to prioritize our convenience or our comfort over our community here. But when we start to limit, when we start to decide who we are going to be in community with, we, we will create division in the church. We will create social hierarchies that are, again, opposite the, the very gospel values that we believe. Philemon shows us often that the most honest indicator of true faith is the presence of Christ-like love in our most messy and difficult relationships. That's the arena where often our faith is tested and it indicates whether or not we really have applied the gospel truths. This past Sunday, um, I had a situation with my, one of my children where they had a sleepover on Saturday night. And they asked me, I won't say who, Dad, could I... Can I miss church? I know we're all going to church, but can I miss church and just watch it on YouTube? In situations like this, it's going to happen for all of us, where you are again tempted, and we had a long conversation of how does my faith, how does the gospel inform now the decisions that I'm going to make moving forward? And one thing that you notice with Paul in this letter is that he is not explicit to Philemon. He doesn't say, Philemon, when Onesimus comes, you should set him free. He doesn't give him specific directions. He leaves it up to Philemon to work out those decisions with wisdom and discernment. And in the same way, all of us in the coming weeks and months will have to make decisions based on our circumstances with wisdom and discernment. But I'm encouraging us today. I'm challenging us today to let the gospel truths 
inform and guide our decisions. When we are faced with that temptation in the coming weeks and months to choose comfort over community, to choose convenience over serving this body, to be motivated by self-interest rather than to be motivated by love for my fellow brother and sister, to want to carry their burdens as we've been called to do. When we are faced with that decision, I'm asking you today, I'm asking you today to consider the gospel and let that inform your decision. I believe Philemon is timely for our church today. And, you know, as we pray, whether you're here in this room or at home, let me ask you today, in advance of that decision that's going to be coming in the next weeks and months, let's pray now and let's prepare our hearts now, asking that God will give us the strength and the courage to continue to go and and to press into community, to continue to be someone that will live out those gospel values by being that light and salt, by being someone that will be there for others, to do what Dr. Steve encouraged us, to be that giver in in, in the places and in the relationships that God has called us. Let's pray.